Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused the necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country. Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Lisa McCormick. Lisa lost her son Jeffrey when he was 17 years old to a drug overdose. Lisa later learned Jeffrey had been sex trafficked prior to his death. Lisa speaks and advocates for systemic change that enables American systems to hold traffickers and buyers accountable, prevent human trafficking, and effectively rescue and serve those who have been trafficked. Because of the sensitive nature of the interview, I chose not to end the show with my usual six questions. Instead, we focus heavily on the resilience process Lisa uses of transforming her pain and grief into advocacy, awareness, and a relentless drive to educate others in hopes of preventing future exploitation. Lisa is a member of the Wisconsin Anti-Human Trafficking Advisory Council and is featured in the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families documentary film on youth sex trafficking in Wisconsin to be released in 2019. Lisa speaks on the topics of sex trafficking, drug addiction, bullying, acceptance, and her faith throughout her personal journey as a parent of a sex trafficking victim. She educates groups to recognize the signs of at-risk youth, how to overcome barriers of fear in talking with them and showing them you care, and to give them someone to trust. Lisa has made it her life's purpose to share her family's story so others understand trafficking and how easily our vulnerable children can be exploited. Lisa walks alongside suffering parents, grandparents, and caregivers, supporting them with the knowledge that they are not alone in this journey. In this episode of the Get Up Nation show, we are confronted with the truth that human trafficking exists only because there is a demand for it. If there was no demand, it would not exist. Listeners need to be aware that we're going to be discussing realities in our world which may not be appropriate for children to hear. 
for survivors of exploitation, I want to ensure that you practice self-care should you listen to this in order to ensure your own health. Make sure you are getting any help you need. And if you need to take breaks during listening to this podcast episode, please do so. And now I present to you, Lisa McCormick. Welcome to Get Up Nation, Lisa. It's my honor to have you here. I've been looking forward to having you share your journey on the show. This is a very necessary topic that people need to understand uh, across the United States, across the world, in Wisconsin. Even if people don't know anything about human trafficking, that's very important for them to understand that this is not some foreign concept that only happens in other countries. It's important for us to have awareness. So right now, I just want to open it up to you, Lisa, if you would share a little bit about who you are and why you're here today. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Um, my name is Lisa McCormick, and I am from a small rural town in Wisconsin called Toma. And, you know, I never had heard of sex trafficking or anything about trafficking until about three years ago when my son Jeffrey got involved in a trafficking ring after being a runaway and a drug addict. And unfortunately, for the last six months of his life, he was trafficked all the way up until his death in September of 2016. Jeffrey, you know, he, he's the youngest of three. I have three children, and he was my youngest. Around middle school really is when things started to change for him. He was pretty normal regular little kid, grew up in a real small elementary school. But when he went up to middle school, he suddenly was thrust in amongst all these other kids of all different cities and locations and around the community that he just really didn't know how to fit in. And so he tried sports, he tried music, he tried all different looks and styles and things to try to fit in at school. And the only group of kids that he really fit in well with were the kids that were, you know, kind of making the bad choices and doing some, you know, bad things at, at home or at school. And so um, that was a group of friends that he hung out with. And so during this time of middle school, he started experimenting with drugs. Um, and it started out with marijuana, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, um, eventually became prescription drugs. Um, by his ninth grade year of high school, he met a girl and they started doing a drug called Triple C, which is an over-the-counter cold medicine. And he started taking that and got in trouble at school on that medication. And that day when he came from home from school was the first time that he told me he'd been using drugs. And so that was three and a half years that he'd been using drugs and I was completely unaware of what was going on in his life. And so that moment we put him into an to the emergency room and did what was called a chapter 51. So we put him into um, a a rehab hospital to get him the help that he needed. And when he came back home from that, you know, I guess in my mind, I just thought he'd go to the hospital, he'd go to the doctor, you know, you get fixed and you come back home. And that didn't happen. He came back home and unfortunately part of the process of coming home is he had to go into a day treatment facility. And that facility, none of those kids had had any type of drug rehab. They were all juvenile delinquent cases. And so these kids were now bringing drugs in on a regular basis into this facility. And K2, um, the synthetic marijuana, was the drug of choice at that time. And my son also met a 14-year-old girl there. She was living in a group home, and her mom kept hiding her out at different locations around the community so that she'd have access to her. And so my son decided to start running away with this young girl to be with her. Unfortunately, that began a cycle of him running away over the next two to three years 
um, using harder drugs every time he'd run away, um, being gone for longer lengths of time every time he'd run. And then suddenly in January of 2016, he'd been missing for about six weeks when he gave me a phone call and asked me to come pick him up. Now, by this time, you know, we're about three years into this and we've been He's been actively using drugs, and I knew not just to pick up and go pick up, you know, go get him. And so um, I set up something with the police, and the police, when they picked him up, my son informed him that he'd been with these men, and they'd been giving him a lot of drugs. He thought he'd only been gone for about two weeks, and he'd been forced to have sex with women, and if he didn't do it, he would be beaten. Upon looking into it a lot further, we found out that these men were known child predators in the Madison area and that they were actually sex traffickers. Um, they were forcing my son to have sex with multiple women, and then if they did, Jeffrey didn't do what he asked, they would beat him up. Um, he even came home with burn marks up and down his arms um, from the abuse that they gave him while he was with him. Um, so we were able to get Jeffrey back home, but in the meantime, the traffickers were trying to have access to him, so they were calling him in jail, trying to visit him in jail down in Madison. They were mailing letters up to La Crosse Jail, which is our area up here, and were um, making phone calls up here. In the meantime, they were trying to stalk our family, getting on social media, trying to talk to us through Messenger, you know, just that type of thing that they were doing, just going after us, trying to find out any information they could as to Jeffrey's whereabouts, where he was, what his court date was. Um, the letters that he sent to Jeffrey were obvious grooming-type letters where he was they were telling him how to how to talk to the police, how to talk to the social workers, what type of things did he need to do in order to get into a rehab hospital, which is what Jeffrey really wanted to do was get more help. And so they were trying to convince him all the things they needed to do to get him there so that they would continue to have access with him. They made promises of them getting a job for him. Um, they tried to convince him he could be emancipated, which was Ill illegal in the state of Wisconsin, but Jeffrey didn't know that. And so this type of thing was going on really over the period of about two weeks. Finally, we were, Jeffrey, we got him transferred back up to La Crosse, and then Jeffrey was placed in a room they call the chill room, where you can just kind of listen to music and relax a little bit. And Jeffrey wrapped the earphone cords around his neck and attempted suicide. And what we realized what was happening at that time is we were just not prepared for the trauma that he'd been through um, the last six weeks. We didn't understand anything that had been going on. And so we threw him right back into the same situation that he was in prior to you know, prior to that last runaway, and that just caused him more stress. So we put him into the emergency room that evening, and that night um, was a very difficult night for him. He actually was transported three times between the jail and the hospital because nobody wanted him. And so to Jeffrey, in his mind, he believed that nobody really cared. Nobody wanted him. Nobody was there to support him. Police didn't want him. The jail didn't want him. The hospital didn't want him. Um, I was so far away, so we were you know, doing it all by phone, and, and he just felt so unwanted. And so when he was in the hospital waiting for us to make some decisions on what to do next, um, he took off and he ran away from the hospital. This time he ran to a nearby Walgreens, borrowed a phone from a woman, and um, asked her if he could call his mom. And in reality, he was calling his traffickers to run right back to his traffickers. Now, a lot of people kind of question why in the world would he 
go back to the traffickers instead of calling me or calling someone else. And, and he really believed that he, in his mind, the traffickers had conditioned him to believe that they were the most important people to him. They were the ones that could take care of him and continue to help him through whatever's next in his life, where he was afraid if he called me that he would, you know, one, get back in trouble again, and that um, he knew that we loved him but that um, he couldn't stand to watch the hurt and the pain that he was putting us through every time he would, we would be together. And so, so this time we knew he was running to Madison. Um, I sent the police directly to the trafficker's house. This time the traffickers, two men, were inside the home, and my son and another girl were sitting outside of the home on the porch when the police drove up. When the police got there, my son took off running down the alley, and this time, as the police catch my son, my son assaults the officer, and so my son now has to go to adult jail. He's 17 years old and has to sit in adult jail for a while. After my son gets out of jail, he was able to come home and be home with us for about nine days um, when he takes off again. This time, over the next few months, I'm hearing once in a while from him. I'm hearing from um, homeless shelters in Iowa that he's down there. I'm hearing from rehab hospitals and and uh, one time he even overdosed and he, a hospital called me. Um, so I was hearing things in Iowa. We'd heard that he was um, selling himself on Craigslist, but I really still didn't connect it to trafficking or anything until after he died. I had talked to my son about two weeks prior to his death and told him that I was trying to get him what's called a three-party petition. I was trying to get him into a rehab hospital and get it court appointed. And I told him, I said, just get back to Wisconsin and we'll serve you with these papers and we can get going. And and so on a Friday, Jeffrey, you know, we had this conversation and on Monday morning, the social worker called me and told me that he'd run away again. Um, and then I didn't hear anything again until um, September 30th, 2016 when a sheriff came to my door and told me that my son had passed away. We later learned that it was a heroin overdose that was um, laced with fentanyl. Um, it happened in Madison. And I do believe to this day that the traffickers are the one that paid for his hotel room and paid for his drugs. But unfortunately, I don't have any proof um, of that. No one's talking, and so there's no charges or anything that have been placed there. And you'd think the story would end there where uh, my son has now passed away. But unfortunately, it, the traffickers continued coming toward our family. As we were planning the funeral services, someone dropped off an envelope of photos at the funeral home. And on the outside of the envelope, it said, these are photos of your son from the last four months of his life. And inside, if you looked at these photos, you might think they're normal selfies that teenagers take today. But if you looked really close into the photos, you'd see he had sunglasses on and you could see who was taking the photo. Um, sometimes he had sunglasses hanging on the front of his shirt and you could see a person in there. Photos were edited and cropped so that you could see maybe the body of someone in it, but not necessarily their head or anything. Um, there was a series of photos in there of um, a man uh, with a leather strap between his fingers, and it was a series of photos of him beating my son. And if you look at the, the final photo in the series, you'll see that he's that reaction on his face of being hit and beaten um, with tears in his eyes. And um, there are also photos in there of my son, obviously very high, 
Um, and what I've learned since we received these photos is that traffickers often will take photos of their victims and then use them to hold over them, to blackmail them, to tell them that, you know, if you don't do what we say, I'm going to take these photos of you doing drugs to the police. Or I'm going to take these photos of you doing this and show your mom. And so they use these for the victims to show the control that they have over them in that situation. But also by showing it to the family, they're showing you that this is where we've had your son and the control that we've had over your son, that he cares for us and loves us a lot more than you. And and um, that was pretty rough to look at. And the funeral director had actually told us not to look at the photos. They were pretty graphic. And it actually took me about three months to get the courage and strength to actually even look at the photos at all. But um, then as we're planning the actual funeral services, I had I had scheduled a police presence there because I was afraid some of my son's friends may come um, under the influence of drugs, and I wanted them, you know, everyone to be safe there. Um, and the social worker had come through about three times already, bringing different kids through um, that were my son's friends. And on the fourth person, she came, came through the fourth time by herself, and I kind of laughed and wondered why she was coming in again. And she whispers in my ear, he's on his way. And I said, who's on his way? And she informed me that the trafficker, the guy that we call the pimp, the top guy, um, was on his way to the funeral. And she says, but don't worry, we'll stop him at the highway and he won't get in here. Well, probably not five minutes later, in he walks, um, sharp-dressed looking man um, with a woman on his arm who was crying. And they walk in and they introduce themselves as Jeffrey's friend from Madison. And I instantly knew who he was because he'd stalked our family on social media previously. I knew um, I knew what he looked like. I knew who he was. And so um, as soon as he stepped past me, I told my daughter that that was him and um, we needed to have him removed. And so the funeral director came up and removed him from the service. He was very courteous and nice and just left. Um, and he was escorted to the highway to make sure that he actually did leave. Um, but then the next morning, we're planning the actual funeral service uh, or we're having the actual funeral service. And, um, you know, the whole service kind of goes by in a blur until we're sitting out at the cemetery and um, we're sitting at the grave and there's the sea of people out there. And um, off to my right, my daughter elbows me and says, Mom, look to your right. And over to the right is the man, um, another one of the traffickers, and he's wearing, you know, a Carhartt jacket and jeans and a baseball cap, dressed very casual, and has a young boy on his arm who is, you know, Jeffrey's age. And he is holding this boy very tight, arm around him. His other arm is holding his arm real tight. And to me, my gut was just telling me that this man was holding this young boy there and telling him, this is going to be you. If you don't keep doing what we want you to do, you know, this is going to be you. And it just, it just shook me um, that that man was actually there and doing that. And, um, and then I look up over the sea of all the people out there and my daughter, daughter elbows me again. And she says, look out there, mom, there he is again. And there was another man out there and I kind of call him the bottom um, in the, trafficking lingo that's what they're called but this is the person who um, was my son's friend this is the guy who um, if my son wanted to call home he's the one that helped Jeffrey call home he's the one that promised Jeffrey a job someday and so he was to my son 
he was kind of his friend and his hero. And so there he was standing out there staring at us. And I swear to you, he never blinked once. And um, that's when I lost it. Um, I started crying um, very loudly. I couldn't speak. Um, and I think to everybody around, they probably thought that I was crying because they didn't want my son in the ground. But the real truth of it all is that there was no possible way I was ever going to leave those men with my son ever again. And there is no way that I'm going to walk out of that funeral and that cemetery and let those men ever have access. And so when I was able to finally coherently speak again, um, I explained to my family what was going on. And then my um, um, the funeral directors then asked everyone to leave and remove them from the situation. Um, and so um, from that point on, I knew that um, there was no way I was going to let another boy, another girl, another child go through what my son went through. And there was no way I was ever going to let another family walk through this walk um, and through this path ever again. Um, it's my life's mission now, I think, um, that I'm just going to go out there and share our story to anyone who will listen to educate them on what trafficking is and help another family so that they'll never have to go through this again. Lisa, I just, I just want to thank you for being here and for making that your life mission. What needs to change and how do we help? There's lots that's happening right now. I mean, certainly um, education, I think, is huge. Um, we cannot leave this up to the police department to catch all these criminals that are out there. Um, trafficking is such a invisible crime, really, because a human can be sold over and over and over again. And so you don't notice a person driving a car down the street and know that they're being trafficked. But if you ever feel in your gut that you see something that is suspicious, you know, report it and, and call somebody and tell somebody. And there's so many different ways that you can report that information and be able to help. But you need to know what you're looking for and what the signs are. So go out and get educated and find out what that is. The other thing is the demand, you know, that if there's no demand, there's no then the traffickers aren't going to do this anymore. And so, you know, um, there's a lot of great programs out there for men, um, especially, but women buy it as well. Um, is to have programs to be able to recognize what a John looks like, so a person who's buying that, um, and to be able to recognize that so that we can stop the demand so that can end as well. There's some great legislation that's changing. The safe harbor law um, that we are trying to fight right now and get through and get passed in Madison is to make the juveniles, anyone under the age of 18, it is considered child abuse and we should be able to give them all the services and all the help. And then the biggest thing is once we get these kids and we get them out and we get their help, uh, what are we going to do with them? We don't have enough resources out there. We don't have, in the entire country, there are three homes for boys that have been sex trafficked in Pennsylvania and New Mexico and Florida. I mean, nothing up in the Midwest at all. There's hardly enough beds for women if we want to find a place for them to get the help. So we need to recognize that especially in juveniles, but even as adults, you know, that when they need help, they need help now. We need to find a place to get them the help. Um, we need to make sure that all of our resources that we do have are educated on trafficking and recognize the signs of it, because that psychological part of it is so different than a domestic abuse situation or a child abuse situation. And it's something that we all need to be aware of so that we can really make sure that we know what we're talking about out there. What encourages you when you see efforts that are being made as you 
are forced to cope with this reality, what encourages you today? When I went through this myself um, three years ago, I felt so alone. I didn't feel like there was any help out there or resources out there. And um, so I really thought when I was fueled by this desire to go do something that I had to go out and create it on my own. And what I've learned is that there really is some great resources in our state and some great uh, people doing some great work. We just need to talk about it more. We need to share that information more. And so, you know, I went out there and said, there's nothing for boys and there's nothing for families out there. There's lots of resources for women. And so that's when I went out and did. And I went and partnered with some um, convergence resource resources in um, Milwaukee. And then I also partnered with Fresh Start Learning in Milwaukee. And then also worked with the Janesville um, Human Trafficking Task Force as well and created some programs there um, that are for the families specifically to help the families understand what their victims have gone through. Um, and what their their child, their survivor that they are now, you know, what what happened to them and why are they such a different person now than what they were when they left our home as a teenager? And so really is wonderful to be able to help families understand what has happened to their child so that they can now begin to build that family back up and grow that family um, as a family should be. And unfortunately, some of those relationships got quite severed. Uh, in those teenage years, and we're, I'm hoping that we'll be able to uh, build our families back up again. What do parents need to understand? Parents need to be patient. Sometimes it's very easy to jump in and jump to conclusions and not understand the psychological trauma that's going on with trafficking. Um, many times people who have been trafficked may become promiscuous afterwards, um, and having multiple partners, and so parents don't understand that, um, and that's just a lifestyle that they learned. They didn't learn what a healthy relationship was. They didn't learn how to um, be a good partner, and so those are skills that the victim or the survivor has to learn, but then the family also has to understand that that they've got to learn those skills all over again. It's not something you just watch and learn. And so I think a parent has to be very patient um, and really kind of has to admit that there's get past that judgment, get past that shame and guilt that you may feel and just have to admit that, okay, I need to learn more about this. I need to understand more what my child's going through and step over that. Um, many families are afraid to admit that this happened to their family or that they happened within their family or their child and they're afraid of the judgment of what others are going to think of them. And, and I tell you, I was there too. I, I, I was very scared of what other people would think of me, but, and think of our entire family, but truthfully um, the praise and the blessings and the prayer that came out of it far exceeded any judgment that would have been out there. How can the medical and mental health community do a better job of serving survivors. Same along to all this other thing. It's that education. Um, many times um, a, a person who's being trafficked may come into a hospital or a medical clinic, maybe with a sexually tra transmitted disease. Maybe they're coming in with um, broken bones or, you know, abuse and beatings and that type of thing. And when they come in, they'll come travel in in twos 
And usually one of the persons in there will do all the talking. The other one is completely silent and they will do all the talking and explain everything, provide what information. Normally they're not related. Normally they're not a parent or a sibling. Um, and so it's suspicious if you're seeing someone come in with another person like this and the person who's actually been hurt is not doing any of the talking. And medical professionals um, in some of the trainings that are going on right now, what they're teaching them is that find a way or an excuse to separate the two of them. You know, say that I, there's a test that needs to be done in another room and take the victim to another room or ask the other person to leave the room so that you can con do, conduct this test. Um, this way you can get them alone and be able to say to them, you know, do you need help? Is there something we can do? Um, don't be afraid to ask those questions that say right out, you know, are you in trouble? Um, using the word trafficking is not a good word to use. Many times they do not understand the word or know what the word trafficking means. So it's more along the line of, can we help you get out of the situation you're in right now? Can, are, you, are you in trouble? Do you need help? Those type of questions so we can get them away from that person and try to find out more information as we can. Be very cautious and careful about giving them a brochure about domestic violence or sex trafficking um, or even giving them a piece of paper with a phone number at a call, you know, or a business card or something. Because um, anything that they are given, the trafficker will find and then they will be beaten again. So we really want to make sure that we're keeping them safe um, and in a way that is um, going to protect them. How can first responders do a better job of identifying and serving survivors? say everything's about education right so the more you know the more you know what to look for the more you look for those signs question the people that are together and why they're you know in that vehicle why are you doing this you know trying to get as much information as you can to understand the situation of what's happening and then you know I think it's really great when uh, first responders have a resource in their pocket so they know that if they find a woman or a male who's been trafficked and they get them back to the police department there is a very good chance that person's not going to talk to a police officer now you may uh, many times they'll bring in you know a police officer of the opposite sex so that you know they will talk to a female to female type thing but it doesn't matter they have been groomed and trained to not trust police and not talk to police and so if the police departments can have in their back pocket a resource, a victim advocate, somebody that can come in and talk to this person. They find that um, if you can bring a victim advocate in and talk with them, they may not give you the answers immediately that first time you meet, but the next time they get picked up by the police, they're going to say, hey, where's that lady that I talked to last time? And you bring her in again. And eventually you may actually earn the trust to where they'll actually want to talk and tell you what's going on. But it's good to have those resources available to you so that they can help you out when you need it. The pain associated with this has to be profound. What keeps you going to create a world where this does not exist. I have a strong faith. I believe very strongly that my God has walked me through this journey for a reason. He gave me my son for 17 amazing years, and they weren't easy. They were difficult, but I wouldn't trade it for the world to have had him in my life. And 
I believe that God has given us this plan for me to go out and talk to other people, for me to be able to share this with other families who are walking the same walk that I am. Um, it's so much easier to talk to somebody who's been there versus someone who has no clue what you're talking about. And if I can walk this walk with someone else, that just makes my heart happy. If I can talk to schools and churches and communicate it to youth groups so that those kids all know what to look for so when something happens and their little red flag waves, they know that this is a situation I need to get myself out of. And that's what it's about. It's about being able to help other people. I couldn't help my son. And there were laws there that were there to protect my son, but we didn't know what they were. And so if I can go out and educate people and talk to people about it, the more people that know, it's going to give us more power to get further and, and hopefully to be able to end this. I appreciate this opportunity then to be able to talk with you and share this. I feel very strongly that God has given me this gift of gab, you know, to be able to go out and share our story and share my son. Um, when I go out and speak, I introduce myself as a mom. You know, I truly am a mom with a heart for her children, and I want to go out and tell the world about my children, just like any mom wants to do. Unfortunately, my son you know, made some poor choices in life, but my son knew who God was, and I know that he is up there watching down on me very proudly saying, you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing, Mom. And so, you know, I, it gives me the strength to move on and the courage to face some scary things sometimes. But I know that there's a purpose in what I'm doing. And the more people that I can talk to and educate and share, the more people can hear this message, I believe that we truly are going to be able to make a change, make some differences.